open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 20 through 31. Jeremiah 5, 20 through 31. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear Yahweh our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They, do, they know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares Yahweh? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, you are transcendent, you are righteous, you are just, without any defect, imperfection, lack, inconsistency, and we are sinners. You are God Almighty, Omnipotent, Sovereign. And so, Father, teach us now to fear You, to tremble, to show You the reverence You are due. Forgive us when we treat You casually, when we regard our sin lightly, when we play with holy things, when we seemingly saunter into Your presence in prayer without any regard for who You are and who we are. May we cherish and cling to Christ with more zeal and earnestness because of all this now. 
bless the preaching of your word, Father. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. Psalm 111.10 tells us that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. If the fear of the Lord is the starting line, I'm afraid that the American church has a handicap that goes as far back as the race goes forward. We're as deep in the pit of folly as the mountain of wisdom is tall that we pretend that we're climbing. We laugh at the ridiculous studies funded by government elites. We mock some of the courses offered by institutions of higher learning. But have we considered that this is somewhat like the court jester laughing at the clown on the streets? Proximity to the truth is no guarantee of intelligence. Being part of the court doesn't mean that you're not necessarily a fool. Having a Bible in the hand is not the same thing as having it in your head or your heart. Once, ministers of the gospel were regarded as the most learned among society. Though we're laughed out now and shouldn't expect anything otherwise, have we ever considered that perhaps we are a joke? Folly abounds both inside and outside the church, but unfortunately, we only want to hear the joke that's about the other guy willing to recognize our own folly. Here, God exposes the folly of His people, but He's not laughing because it's no laughing matter. Once again, He calls on His people to be prophets to themselves. The verbs in verses 20 are plural. Declare, proclaim, y'all declare, y'all proclaim. Just as the, we had these plural verbs and the commands given in chapter 5 and uh, verse 1 and chapter 4 and verse 5. You remember in chapter 4 and verse 5, God called on Judah to make a declaration to herself. And then in 5.1, He called on them to make an examination of themselves. And just in case they failed to take the examination, God here tells them to proclaim what the results would be, what the results are of that examination. The declaration that they are to make is a summons to hear, verse 21. God commands Judah to tell herself to hear, and what she is to hear is that she cannot hear. Hear this. You who have ears, but hear not. Let's back up and take these commands in, and you'll see how it proves this very point. The, the command given in 4, 5, and 6 was, Declare in Judah, proclaim in Jerusalem, blow the trumpet through the land, cry aloud and say, Assemble and let us go into the fortified cities. Raise a standard toward Zion, flee for safety, stay not, for I bring disaster from the north and great destruction. Instead of this, she speaks falsely of Yahweh, saying, 5 and verse 12, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. 
she cannot hear. He tells them to proclaim one message, they proclaim the opposite. She cannot hear. She's described as a foolish and senseless people. She has eyes, she cannot see, ears, she cannot hear. Psalm 135 explains how one comes into this state. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You become what you worship. They've become blind and deaf. We look at these ancient idols and we think they're not only blind and deaf, they're dumb. Dumb, dumb. They're stupid, ridiculous, foolish. But if we don't recognize that our own modern idols are just as foolish, we've failed the hearing test as well. It's remarkable how stupid, how smart stupid can look. The most popular contemporary creation myth is that everything came from nothing. That might sound like the creation uh, account of Christians, but it's not because we believe that creation was ex nihilo, everything we see was from nothing, but it was by an omnipotent and wise God that it came to be. The popular creation myth of our age, though, says that this is all the effect of no cause. This is all the design of no designer. And we laugh at those who worshipped Zeus. If anything, the class averages of humanity have decreased over the years. C.S. Lewis's poem, Evolutionary Hymn, brings this out well. Lead us, evolution, lead us up the future's endless stair. Chop us, change us, prod us, weed us, for stagnation is despair. Groping, guessing, yet progressing, lead us nobody knows where. Wrong or justice, joy or sorrow, in the present what are they? While there's always jam tomorrow, while we tread the onward way? Never knowing where we're going, we can never go astray. To whatever variation our posterity may turn, hairy, squashy, or crustacean, bull beside, square of stern, tusked or toothless, mild or ruthless, towards that unknown God we yearn. Ask not if it's God or devil, brethren, lest your words imply static norms of good and evil as in Plato throned on high. Such scholastic, inelastic, abstract yardsticks we deny. Far too long have sages vainly glossed great nature's simple text. He who runs can read it plainly. Goodness equals what comes next. By evolving, life is solving all the questions we perplexed. On then, value means survival value. If our progeny spreads and spawns and licks each rival, that will prove its deity. Far from pleasant by our present standards, though it may well be. Let's work out the math of where our current folly has brought us today. Because everything came from nothing, a man can come from an amoeba. 
And because of that, a man can be a woman. In our enlightened state, we've advanced so far beyond the ancients that we believe a person with two X chromosomes can become a man if they so desire. You see, we've advanced from evolution over ages to evolution on demand. We make up the ridiculous because we deny the obvious. We are fools. Now, folly and senseless walk hand in hand here, but whereas not seeing, not hearing unfold senseless, verse 22, not fearing and not trembling tease out folly, foolishness. Psalm 53 tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Folly is behaving and living as though God were not The fool fails to hear God. He tries to live as if there were no God. He closes his eyes and plugs his ears and makes loud noises, thinking this will make God go away. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 50 and verse 6, that the heavens declare His righteousness, for He Himself is judge. Romans 1 tells us that men suppress this truth in unrighteousness. And thus not honoring or thanking God, they create a God in their own image, in the image of creation, and claiming to be wise, they become fools. Such folly and such senselessness abound in the church today. Many professing Christians cannot see, they cannot hear, and thus they do not speak. Play a video, and everyone's in tune. Dim the lights, get the right beat, and the excitement is tangible. But simply preach the word of truth, and it will quickly be obvious that you're entertaining goats rather than drawing out those sheep who hear their master's voice. The church is full of foolery because it's full of fools. The church marketers claim wisdom, but their wisdom is void of the fear of the Lord. Reverence is rare. Fear of God is absent. Now to make vivid this folly, a contrast is presented between the sea and God's people in verses 22 and and 23. Whenever you begin reading verse 22, God placing the sand as a boundary for the sea, this perpetual barrier that it can't pass, though the waves and all their fury and tumultuousness can't prevail against it. They roar, but they don't pass And you begin reading this and you think that the point is to induce godly fear. These verses remind you of of Job chapter 38. God questions Job asking, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea 
with doors when it burst out of the womb. When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Well, indeed, these verses, as that passage in Job, are reverence-inducing, indeed. But that's not the primary point. That's secondary to the thrust of this passage at this point, which is to contrast the proud sea being stayed by sand, by God's almighty power, and the rebellion of His people. God stops the waves in their fury with sand. And His people who have ears, they have eyes, are stubborn and rebellious and turn aside and go away. They are more arrogant and wild than the sea. They transgress the bounds God has set. That's the point. Yes, this is to evoke fear, but the primary point is this contrast. The evidence of this folly and senselessness of His people is that they transgress the bounds God has set. Today, the law isn't preached. It's ignored. And it's true, God's grace is greater than our sin. But you don't magnify God's grace by ignoring His law and the truth concerning our sin. You magnify God's grace by letting the law thunder in all of its glory so that man might behold his sin and then you speak of God's grace and show just how Astounding it is. Think of the sins that are treated lightly, glossed over, ignored. Just think in particular about how divorce, fornication, adultery are hushed, not mentioned. They might offend someone. Stupidity is always inching forward. This kind of lax attitude toward sexual immorality is now demonstrated in areas such as homosexuality. We don't take the law seriously because we don't take God seriously. We delude ourselves saying, He will do nothing. Their transgression is rooted in a stubborn and rebellious heart. Verse 23. There's a link here that's too easily missed in English. The word that you have as senseless in verse 21 has as its root the same word translated heart. And verse 24, hearts. Indeed, a strict translation of senseless would be heartless. So this heartless people is a people with a rebellious heart. A people that don't say in their hearts, let us fear. That's a heart that isn't functioning properly. And whenever we think of the heart, we often think of emotions. 
But notice what the heart is doing in this passage. This foolish, heartless people have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. So the heart has to do with understanding, with perception. It's also in this related to the conscience, knowing good and evil. And then also notice that the heart is is tied into volition or to the will. A stubborn heart, a rebellious heart, a heart that won't bow, a heart that won't obey. So it's a heart that's uh, that, that chooses evil. It has to do with the will. The heart then is the core of man. It's associated with his mind, his thoughts, his understanding, his perception. It deals with his, his decisions, his volition. It deals with his conscience. C.S. Lewis complained in his day of modern education, creating men without chests. And what he referred to was this dump of information in the mind, but there's no instruction of the heart concerning virtue, how it should feel about those things that have been dumped into his mind, which he says is exactly the point of education, to instruct the heart. Well, Judah was, and the church today is guilty, of creating men without chests, men without hearts, that don't fear Yahweh. The Word of God is not taught so that it breaks the heart of stones, bringing repentance, giving hearts of flesh that beat with faith in the gospel of Christ. Many in the evangelical world, you don't hear the law, you don't hear God's wrath and judgment, you don't hear any of these things taught, you hear just simply, He loves you. And then Jeremiah is even manipulated and selected from so that you're told he has a wonderful plan for your life. When you look at God's goodness and it causes you to respond casually to sin, you're not hearing. You're not seeing. You say grace, but you don't know anything of how it operates and works. Notice how this lack of fear is particularly brought out in verse 24. It isn't tied back to God's omnipotent power as displayed in verses 22 and, well, in verse 22 concerning the sea. Rather, it, it begins to unfold forward. They don't fear their God who gives rain in its season, the autumn rain, the spring rain. So it's not His power as it restrains the sea, but His benevolent power as it provides. Should we fear God because of His wrath, His judgment, His justice, His righteousness? Indeed, we should also fear Him because we have no good apart from Him. Ingratitude is a vile form of irreverence. A lack of fear. These things, rain and harvest, would be things they're now attributing to Baal. They're receiving God's good gifts, the good gifts of their husband, and attributing them to her adulterous lover. Ingratitude is fertile soil for idolatry. And idolatry is just a perverse and ugly form of ingratitude. These harvests, the harvests mentioned here, 
appointed for the weeks appointed for the harvest. These refer to the, the feast. And often we think of all those Jewish festivals as, as we miss the point if we think of them as some kind of burden that they had to do. They were festivals. Think of the routine, hard agrarian life that they knew. And these festivals were times appointed by God where he said, you shall celebrate, you shall rejoice, you shall feast and enjoy. He's commanded, he's, he's given this rain and then he's commanded them to rejoice in his provision and their arrogance, their rebellion, their stubbornness, their folly, their lack of fear is such that they, they refuse to say, thank you. They refuse to rejoice in them as God has told them. Their lack of fear is evident in this. They bite the hand that feeds them. And this this lack of fear is demonstrated in their iniquities, their sins, verse 25. And their iniquities have turned these away from them, the rain and the harvest. They've turned these things away. Their sins have kept these good things from them. The terms of the covenant were, if you obey... He's going to bless the land in fruitfulness and abundance. And if they disobey, these things would be taken from them. Just as Adam, when he sinned, was cursed and driven from the garden. The ground was cursed as he was driven from the garden. So he's telling them, your sins will cause a curse to come upon the ground and I will drive you out from this land. Deuteronomy 28, he tells them, the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be iron. Yahweh will make the rain of your land powder. So Judah turns away from God, knowing that God has said, if you turn away from me, if you turn away from my ways, my law, my truth, if you turn away from them, these good things will turn away from you. And this is their lack of fear. That they turn. They show no reverence, no gratitude. They turn, saying with their action, He will do nothing. What kind of sins, what kind of iniquities do you think then would be expounded upon at this point? By the flow of Jeremiah up to this point, you'd think he might elaborate on idolatry and the sexual immorality that was bound up with that idolatry. But instead, we see greed and injustice. Instead of gratitude, greed. Greed, I think, which fuels this injustice. These wicked men act like fowlers, deceptively trapping men. And just as if you went to a fowler's house and you saw it full of all these birds, it would say, he's good at trapping, he's good at deceiving. And so whenever you walked into these wicked men's homes and you saw that they were rich and slick, sleek, fat, when you saw their abundance, it spoke to the deceptiveness by which they trapped and caught men for gain. They don't care for the fatherless. They don't care for the needy. They exploit this. These are men who are in positions of power executing judgment for personal gain. In 5.1, you remember God called for them to conduct a search to see if there was one, find one, who does justice and seeks truth. Chapter 5 and verse 5, we see that the great don't know the way of Yahweh, the justice of their God. They should, but they do not. Instead, they know no bounds. 
and evil. They're more arrogant and reckless than the sea. God instructed His people saying, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child if you mistreat them and they cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Exodus 22. Injustice is often associated with power. But rest in this. It never goes all the way to the top. Because the God of absolute power is a God of absolute justice. So much so that though He is a God of grace, He never extends grace in such a way that compromises His righteousness or justice. If He forgives sinners, it will be, up by, it will be by upholding righteousness and justice in punishing the Christ in their place. The injustice condemned here was verse 26. Found among my people. It continues to be so to this day. The most obvious example I think is. The proponents of the prosperity gospel. The preachers of the prosperity gospel. Who are the only ones prospering by that gospel. Recently a report out of Texas, sickeningly revealed numbers of sexual abuse, misconduct in the Southern Baptist Convention. What's most disturbing is the number of instances that it seemed that leadership glossed over, tried to hide, hush the victims whenever this occurred in their fellowships. Why such injustice? I think one word, there could be other angles at which we look at it, but one word which could capture the reason is greed. How will we keep the machine running? How will it look so good? How how can all this stay intact? Remember, Peter encouraged his fellow elders to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Where there's shameful gain being sought, domineering walks hand in hand with it. In Titus, we're told that an Overseer is, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Sin always travels in herds. And you remember that Paul tells us that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil? Where you find greed, if you lift up that rock, I'm sure the multitude of other ickiness that is unfolded in that list will be right there with it. Where gain is sought, injustice is found. Remember Jesus looked out at the crowds. He had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9. Likewise in the church today there are many wolves. The chief shepherd bled for the flock. 
Today we see an abundance of wolves who are bleeding the flock. Well, if the kings and officials are chiefly in view here, as I think they are, we turn in this next and concluding section to the prophets and the priests. Verses 30 and 31. We're told that an appalling thing, something horrid has happened in the land. There are three aspects to this thing. First is that the prophets prophesy falsely. We've already dealt with some of that in the text. Second, the priests rule at their direction. This could be either the priests ruling at the direction of these false prophets or they're ruling at their own direction. Either way, they're not following the way of the Lord, justice and righteousness and truth. But those things have always been so. There have always been varying levels of corruption among the priests and, and the prophets throughout Israel's history. I think the idea here is that these are now the thing that happens. These are standard. These are normal. These are categorically so, rampantly so, pervasively so. But I think still the, the really appalling thing, the climactic peak of this list is this. They do this and the people love. My people love to have it. So, you remember that Jeremiah's search for one who does justice and seeks truth began, verse 4, among the poor. And none were found. The prophets, the priests, the kings are all catering to the appetite of the people. Isaiah 30 explains... They are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of Yahweh who say to the seers, do not see. Did you, they, they're unwilling to hear and they say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Likewise, Paul instructed Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Jesus explained what is behind all this when he said, Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. When the lights are dimmed and lies are espoused from the pulpit, it's not simply because there are wolves in the church, but goats who love to have it so. What the church loves then, what she loves, is appalling. And it's horrid. And thus they're unprepared for the end. Verse 31. They are senseless and foolish. They don't fear whenever they should. A lot of the same imagery that is in this passage is found in what we call the Song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32, where we see Israel's apostasy predicted. And early on the song, we read, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. 
a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright as He. They have dealt corruptly with Him. They are no longer His children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is He not your Father who created you, who made you and established you? And then after going on to unfold the judgment that's going to come upon them for their folly and senselessness, he goes on to say, they're a nation void of counsel. There's no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. Their folly is not only involved in in ignorance of the magnitude of their sin, but in the judgment that's now coming upon them. Their folly is blind and oblivious to their sin and to the judgment to come. Sin is a drug that addictively numbs you to the kind of numbness it's causing. Jesus warned, Just just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be. On the day when the Son of Man is revealed, judgment always falls unexpected on the wicked. They are unaware that they have no grace. They are unaware that they will have wrath. What will they do? There's nothing they can do. Isaiah answers the question, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees! And the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. What is, there, what is there for them to do? Play dead or be dead. Chapter 5 opened, commanding a survey to take place, finding one who does justice and seeks truth. What are the results of this survey? Nothing is found but a foolish and senseless people. Survey the evangelical church at large today, and you will find it full of foolery and fools. It's stunning, though, how wise they can make folly look. The evangelical church looks so successful but she's senseless. She puts great effort in being attractional to unbelievers unaware 
of how unattractive that makes her. She's fat and slick, but there's a famine of the word. Her health is disease, and her numbers do not testify for her, but against her, as they're nothing but birds uh, caught and baited and trapped for gain. The preachers speak falsely, the pastors rule at their own direction, and the people love to have it so. The church is full of men without chest. She's heartless. There's no fear of Yahweh. David Wells soberingly captures the climate of the American church. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources, bandaging these scratches, will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace is too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ is too common. But know this, in all of this, we're speaking of the visible church. We're speaking of the evangelical church at large. We're speaking of the apostate church, false churches. Do not doubt this. Jesus' bride, His people, He is making holy, washing them with the water of the Word, conforming them to His image to radiate His beauty and glory. This is the pledge of Jesus to His bride in Jeremiah 32. Now therefore thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart. And one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and for the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And so to those who do genuinely fear Yahweh, but are among fools. Let us plead with their souls. Come out from among them. And fear and tremble before the true and living God. And seek a fellowship. 
where the word of truth is taught and submitted to. Saints, I charge you, do not be desensitized by this senselessness. Don't be fooled by this foolery. Don't consider this smartness to be smart. See it for the stupidity that it is. It's not success. Fear Yahweh and tremble before Him. And finally, to those to those among us who you do not see this fear in your own hearts. I pray that the Word of God will will come with such power and weight upon you now. Asking you, will you not fear Him? This is the certainty and ferocity of the wrath and judgment of God. That if He is to show any grace to sinners, it will only be because the crucified Christ has borne judgment in their place. Will you not fear such a God? You have no refuge, no hope outside of Christ. Fear and reverence mean clinging to Christ. Turning from your sin, bracing Christ with the arms of faith and clinging to Him, knowing outside of Him you have no hope before so holy and righteous a God. Will you not fear Him? Will you not cling to Christ? Knowing that in Him alone is there any good from God Almighty. And if you turn from Christ... You have nowhere else to turn. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've provided for such fools as the all-wise God, a righteous Savior to die for unrighteous sinners. And I plead. As the father. In Proverbs. For our children in particular. That they would fear you. That they would run the race of living unto you. May we see your salvation in our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers, but may we also see it in our children, Father. And now may we rejoice in your good grace, celebrating your lavish gifts on us in Christ. In His name, Amen.